Some of you may have noticed that I'm not Terry Bellinger. Um, he seems to be in California, unavoidably detained by the Book Club of California, giving a speech on lunacy, a subject on which I believe he is expert. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this evening, I'm here in his stead, and you have the option of getting a typical long Traster introduction or a short Bellinger introduction, and I've decided in deference to the tutelary deity of this locale to give you the short version. Many years ago, there was a collection in Titusville, Pennsylvania. Through a slight geographical error, which I think must have involved confusing the Delaware River for the Schuylkill River, that collection eventually wandered into New Jersey instead of into Philadelphia, and it's now located at Princeton University, which is, I'm told, a fairly substantial place in the middle of that long highway between Philadelphia and New York. Associated with the Shidey collection, for much of the period of time covered by those three sentences has been Mona Bryan, who is its curator, and who is going to be speaking to us tonight about collectors and research libraries in defense of amateurs. Collections like Shidey's, amateurs' collections, are collections which all of us who work with special collections and with general collections are deeply indebted to, and I think we're going to find that what Mrs. Bryan has to say tonight is of interest and concern to all of us. I didn't realize when I was asked to give, give this talk that I would come to feel or to know that I am antediluvian and a species that is fast becoming extinct. I don't think there are very many librarians of private libraries, at least in America, I don't know any. And now I'm half institutional because our library is deposited in Princeton University and adjoining the rare book section and is used under the same circumstances as the other Princeton collections. So, but I thought I'd review just a little bit how some of our special collections have come to be. And if you start thinking of New York Public or Princeton or Yale, you hear of the, in Princeton it's Kane, McCormick, uh, Parrish, and go on to Coppet. So that these are things which have been collected, what I call, by, call amateurs or lovers of books. And then they have now become available to the public. So I'm going to review just briefly uh, some of the things about people who collecting existed forever and sometimes it's gotten out of hand. Uh, Sir Thomas Phillips collected so much that he wrecked his fortune and his family and everything and I think the first books were sold in the 1890s and Mr. Krauss is still trying to get rid of the rest of the Phillips library today. There also was a monk in the 19th century in Spain who had access to a very valuable library in Tarragona, a monastery library. The more he handled the books, the more he liked them. 
and he has chance came in the 1820s in the political upheavals then there was no no supervision of the monastery and uh, monastery's library he disappeared and a great many of the books disappeared shortly thereafter he showed up in Barcelona in a bookshop one day there was an auction being held at which a book was being sold that was supposedly unique he bid on it but some his competitor had more money than he did and he lost the bid he went into a tirade a few days later um, the successful purchaser died in a fire in his home because Don Vincenti had been so uh, hysterical at the auction he immediately came under suspicion and sure enough there it was in his shop also they found in looking into the matter that there had been 11 other deaths of people with in mysterious fires and all of these books showed up in his shop in the course of the trial he oh when he they took he, he admitted he had the book and but he just asked the police to be very careful of it when in the course of the trial his lawyer was trying to uh, save his life revealed that another copy of this same book had turned up in Paris whereupon Don Vincenti got absolutely hysterical and just kept moaning my copy isn't unique finally he did ascend the scaffold and his last instructions were to give the library to the to the Barcelona library or give his library to so he did give it to an institution but I'm going to review just briefly where some of our great libraries came from for instance Sir Thomas Bodley came into the picture at Oxford there were the, the colleges had uh, libraries but there was no central university library at Oxford the Duke, Duke uh, Humphrey Duke of Gloucester had given them 280 manuscripts and they built a um, room and put them there but the books were stolen or lost or some of them were sold for the vellum in them and uh, it was generally disrepair until Bodley came along and said whereas you have a room and your records show that you have a library I will take charge and cost upon me to make it again free for its suitable for its former use with shelves and, and desks and all that is needful to stir up other people to give help give books to furnish it he not only gave his land but he gave uh, he, he not only gave his books but he gave his land and his money it's for an endowment but he made a very fortunate arrangement with the stationers company of London to have them give one book free of every book printed in London and Oxford still benefits from this however like a lot of donors he did want to run the library his way so he provided that the library would the statutes required that the librarian would be a linguist not encumbered with marriage because marriage interfered too much with um, his task to, uh, to with his time to keep him from doing his task as a librarian and Thomas James who was the first librarian told he was the librarian from 1600 to 1620 he told Bodley he was going to get married and he needed a raise. Bodley said, oh, I can get anybody as good as you are. But he did change the laws and uh, James, did, James got married and he did stay on. 
but the, some of the other rules were not quite as good. He, he banned certain things. He didn't want any plays or what he called baggage books because he said that would disgrace the university. But he, they did have a first folio. But he also provided in the statutes that when a better edition came along, they could, they, that could replace the one that they had. So when the 1664 first folio came on, or folio came, third folio came along with seven new plays, they sold the first folio and bought the fourth, or the third. 150 years later, an undergraduate at Oxford brought in a book which had been in his family for 150 years, but it had still the distinctive Oxford binding, and it's now back in the Bodleian, but it costs the friends of the Bodleian £3,000 to put it there. The, the Samuel Pepys uh, is another library, a library or collector who collected for his own pleasure, and he provided that his library would go to his college, uh, Magdalen College, provided it was kept exactly as he arranged it, exactly as he had it, and if by any chance they changed anything, it was to be tur turned over to Trinity. This rule still holds, and within the last few, oh, 15, 20 years, they were making some change in the room, and they asked the proper people at Trinity and got their permission to do it. So the Peeps Library, known as the Peepsy Bibliotheca Peepsiana, is still intact. And then the last library I'm going to mention, an English library, is the British Museum, which was also assembled from gifts or purchases of private collectors or amateurs of books. And the one that's most surprising to us is George III, whom we think of as the king, the stupid and king who, by his stubbornness and, and stupidity, lost the colonies. But George III was really a very, very astute and active book collector. And his library, which is still known as the King's Library in the British Library, is still one of its greatest treasures. Now, turning to America, in 1853, at the first meeting of the American Library Association, the President remarked that not a single library in America affords the requisite means of thorough research of one topic. Within less than a century and a half, we, our universities and research libraries are some of the best in the world. And again, as I say, these have all come from amateurs of books or collectors, or most of them. I'm going to take three libraries because they were collected for different reasons and uh, for different and have had different uses. J. Pierpont Morgan was born in 1837. He became interested in autographs as a schoolboy. His first purchase was an orange card with President Fillmore's signature. By 1903, he had assembled enough books that they'd outgrown uh, his library and his home, and the present building, which is now at the corner of 36th Street and Madison, uh, was built, and, and, and it was... Um, filled with, very sh uh, shortly after the library was built, on the recommending recommendation of his nephew, he engaged a young cataloger from Princeton, Belle de Costa Green. 
Although Miss Green had definite ideas of her own, and she had definite ideas, Morgan continued to buy books, manuscripts, and art on his own, not always consulting Miss Green, which I'm sure annoyed her. But when and when he died in 1912, he left his library to his son, Pierpont Morgan, Jr. With Miss Green, uh, Morgan uh, continued to collect and added widely to the collections. And in 1924, uh, J.P. Pierpont Morgan created the library as a public institution. One time, I uh, was seeing Miss Green, as I will mention later, and she said, oh, she was absolutely exhausted because she'd just been putting up an exhibit, I think, at the New York Public of Books of Ours. And I said, Mr. Mor and she said, I've just taken Mr. Morgan over for his last night for his approval. And I, at the age of 23, said, well, Mr. Morgan doesn't know anything about Books of Ours. And she looked at me with those firm eyes, the firm look of hers, and said, my dear lady, Mr. Morgan knows more about books of ours than you know now or you are ever going to know. But because he had had a, a very good education, he traveled widely, and his Morgan, his collection followed more or less the pattern of the great European collectors. Henry E. Huntington, on the other hand, in 1905 was described as the director of 40 corporations, including railways, banking, express, land, lumber, and so copper, a great reader and fun-loving and a great joker, but there was no mention of a library. Twenty years later, in 1925, Huntington was admitted to a Philadelphia hospital for an emergency operation, and A.S.W. Rosenbach, the chief dealer in rare books, and Lord Devine, the chief dealer in art, rushed to his bedside. While they were sitting there, Huntington said, do I remind you of anybody? And then hesitated and said, Jesus Christ on the cross between two thieves. <laughs> Huntington did not have the education that most of his fellow collectors have, and he rather envied their, uh, he envied their knowledge. He bought a on a large scale, he bought whole libraries for millions of dollars, from 1915 on, he had a staff of 12 librarians working in a former billiard room within his house in New York, converted for the purpose, sorted out duplicates and, and, and went over the things. He, the duplicates were sold in a series of auctions. The other books were carted up and sent out to San Marino, where he had a 550... Uh, acre estate with the Louis Kahn's house, and um, they were just stored there until he was ready to set up his library. The last thing he did was build a very elaborate mausoleum where he and his wife are buried, and so he has, he has created a great monument for himself, but he also has created a great library. Henry Clay Folger was probably the most public-spirited collector of the, from the very beginning. Folger was a typical example of, of, of an earlier generation, a businessman of an earlier generation, who accumulated a fortune and then gave it away. When he was at Amherst, he became very much interested in literature and especially in Shakespeare. So he decided to collect collect everything he could about Shakespeare, not only Shakespeare's plays, and but also things about him. 
he decided on a site near the Library of Congress as the best place for such an institution. And then he and his wife spent a great deal of time reading catalogs, catalog, getting their books, cataloging them, and putting them in warehouses. He got a very bad name from among his fellow collectors, as somebody who bought books and hid them away. And it wasn't until the president of Amherst read in the paper that the trustees of Amherst had been made um, trustees of the Folger Library, that they, they knew that they were to administer, and again, one of the great libraries in this country. Now I'm going to read also briefly, before I talk about my life and times, Abbe Jean-Baptiste Housset delivered address on the 23rd of December, 1780, on the occasion of his appointment as librarian of the Sorbonne. This address was delivered in Latin, but it's been very frequently reprinted and published as the duties of a librarian. Your library, I don't think any of us would measure up to this. Your librarian should be, above all, a learned and profound theologian. But to this qualification, which I call fundamental, he should be, have united vast literary acquisitions, an exact and precise knowledge of all the arts and sciences, great facility of expression, and lastly, that exquisite politeness which conciliates the affection with admiration for his learning. A librarian truly worthy of the name should have explored in advance every region of the empire of letters to enable him afterward to serve as a faithful guide to all whom he desired and see it. And though it is by no means my intention to give preference from above all other science, the science of bibliography, which is nothing more than an exact and critical acquaintance with the production of, of the intellect, it will nevertheless be permitted me to consider a science a forerunner among others. The superintendent of a library, and this is something you can all imagine, whatever his character should be no stranger to, the depart to any department of learning, sacred or profane literature, the fine arts, especially should he um, should the superintendent of such a library as yours receive all its visitors, whether scholars or the simply curious, uh, can you imagine that in this day and age, with an assiduous attention so polite and so kindly that his a reception shall appear to each one uh, the, a distinct pure and purely personal. We will, he will never seal away and to a solitary spot to pursue his own works, and no matter how busy he will, he is, he should present them with everything they want to see. If I did this, I'd be spending all my time showing people the Gutenberg Bible and having them ask me how much I think it's worth. But I think you can see that times have changed considerably. Now, going on to the Shady Library. The Shady Library like a great many other collections, was begun by William Shady, the present owner, the present owner's grandfather, when he was in the public schools of Philadelphia. And he bought books from Leary's and any place else that he could pick them up. And when he went out to he went out to Western Pennsylvania as an engineer in the early eighteen sixties, 
he already had as many books as we have now. We, he gave away a lot. We have given away a lot, obviously. In 1874, he wrote his first manuscript catalog, having them all classified as essays, reviews, general literature, novels and tales, history, periodicals, science, travel, and adventure. <clears throat> he wasn't at all concerned with first editions or state of the volume, but he did have, we still have a number of his books in the library. We have a first edition of Massinger's New Way to Pay Old Debts, for which he paid a dollar and a quarter. We have a first edition of Milton's Paradise Regained. We have a fine copy of the German Nuremberg Chronicle, so he had his first incunabulum by 1874. And in addition to this, although he was very busy in the oil fields, he, since we, he was living in a little boom town called Tiriut, uh, he printed up a card, because there were no bookstores and there were no libraries, he printed up a card and circulated these books. But when he was 47 years old, in 1889, he decided that he had all the money he would ever need and he'd always wanted time to read. So he resigned his position and left immediately on a grand tour of Europe. He left his wife and two children home, went off on his own, <coughs> and we have a, a very nice series of letters that he wrote home to them. Among the places he saw in England, he went to, the, to Chatsworth and was very much impressed by the Chatsworth Library. In Florence, <coughs> he met Leo Olsky, a dealer in rare books and manuscripts, and bought from Olsky thousands of medieval documents which were being cleared out of, uh, of Monica, uh, Fabriano, uh, Fabriano and Montecassino. He had them sent home in mail bags. He also bought a medieval Latin dictionary, which we still have. He had them sent home in mail bags, and when he got home, set to work on them. He continued to buy from Olsky and also buy, buying from, from um, Ellis, whom he'd met in England. His son, John Shidey, <clears throat> graduated from Princeton in 1896, so he was the age of the Morgans and the Garretts and the traditional collectors of the late 19th and early 20th century. He decided that what he would concentrate on was um, the books which most influenced the development of Western culture. So that while we seem to have a very miscellaneous group of books, they do tie together. First of all, we have early manuscripts, beginning with some biblical papyri of the third century. We have um, early printing in Canabula, including especially printing from in Mainz and the development of printing. We have voyages and travels. We have a great collection of Bibles in the vernacular because he reasoned that most people from the 15th to the through the 18th century learned to read by reading the Bible. So, and we have, for instance, the 18 pre-Lutheran German Bibles, all of which are in different dialects. But and then the the various editions of Luther's Bible, which came out during his lifetime, and these are used a great deal by the people in the German department because you have a known text at a known time. <coughs> And, as I say, they can trace the development of languages and their standardization. <coughs> we, 
William Shady, his we also oh, and then in the 30s he decided we have a great collection of Americana too. In the 30s he decided that the greatest contribution in the 19th and 20th century were being made in science. So he started collecting books on uh, starting with Copernicus and Galileo going on to Einstein collecting books on science. So this pretty much includes the range of our uh, our collection. William Shady has continued to build up these uh, these various branches of the library. He's added some very important uh, incunabula, including the two mites Salters, which his father was never able to get. But he also, since he basically is a musicologist, has added Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, and other music manuscripts. I came to the library from a small college in Ohio knowing absolutely nothing about libraries or finance, I came to work as librarian and secretary to John Sinzoshadi. I had had six years of French and six years of Latin, and I'd had a major in history. I was tutored in German and Spanish after I arrived, but that was really all I knew. When After I'd been there a while and he decided I wasn't quite impossible, he asked some of his friends in the book world how you trained a librarian and they all said don't send her to library school because she won't learn anything there that she needs to know you train her yourself and we'll help you so we started out I spent two months in Washington with Alice Lurch who had been in New York public with Wilberforce Eames and had just finished working on the Folger library which was being opened and was transferring to the Library of Congress. So we, I spent two months with her learning to collate books, to notice uh, conjugate leaves, to, let's, to collate books with her without signatures, noting the gatherings, writing down the collations. I learned to use such bibliographies as I needed. And Mr. Shadi was very good about buying basic bibliographies, which we had or he had or would have he'd always done all his library work before I practically memorized Margaret Stilwell's Incunabula and Americana and wrote to Miss Stilwell from time to time and she always replied very graciously twice a year I went to New York and had sessions with Miss Green and Miss Granis and they'd make suggestions and ask me what I was doing and check on it then after I'd been there several more years uh, Mr. Gerald, who was the then librarian at Princeton, arranged to have me go to Oxford for a summer. And I had appointments with binders, catalogers. I learned to make simple repairs with make rice paste and make repairs with uh, Japanese scars. Uh, what, what books needed dressing, leather dressing, what didn't, when to do it. And generally got familiar with the Bodleian. Well, that is my education, except that I had long since we had no readers, the library was out in Titusville, Pennsylvania, which was very far from any place, I uh, had long days of being able to read about the subject matter and the authors. I talked with Mr. Shidey, who loved these books and told me why they were there. We read catalogs together so that 
I really had an apprenticeship instead of any kind of formal education. As a matter of fact, I think one of the best things I learned was in the field, in, in being accurate, was in the field of finance. I knew nothing about finances, and I'd be handed a great big pile of, of um, commercial and financial chronicles and told to go through them and report on the corporations in which he had an interest. Well, I'd start reporting, and since I didn't know what a lot of them meant, and I'd skip through them, he'd say, well, I think you better read that again. So I'd go back and with a dictionary and some other references and asking questions around, I'd finally get it straight and report it properly. Well, it really was a very good lesson, but this is all a part of an apprenticeship instead of a formal education. There were advantages to this kind of training, but there also, now, because there have been such advances both in bibliography and in science itself, that you really do have to learn and to know about before you start in. One of the first, the library stayed in Titusville and was unused or unattended for about 12 years because I came to Princeton to work on the Jefferson Papers and William Shoddy came to Princeton in New York to set up a Bahari group which he ran for 34 years. So that when the library came in 1959 when Mr. Shady, William Shoddy's mother died, the, one of the first things we had to do was remove all those lovely leather book plates, leather gilt book plates, which matched more or less the bindings or, or uh, didn't jive with them, because they also had left little brown keystones through the next eight or ten pages. So those all had to be carefully removed, and we've substituted acid-free book plates. Also, there were some framed items which had been hanging on the wall, some really rather interesting letters. <coughs> These were taken out of the frames and put in acid-free folders and put in boxes. The things that remained in glass, like the Boston Massacre, Paul Revere's Boston Massacre broadside, we had to unframe and reframe because behind them there were pieces of corrugated board or corrugated paper and slabs of pine board, some of them with knots in them, because framers, they just didn't know these things. Also, there have been a great many changes in bibliographical practices. For example, we no longer sophisticate books or complete books from one copy to another. We have in the Shadi Library a complete tall copy of Eliot's Indian Grammar, printed at Cambridge in 1666, with the signature of S. Mather on the title page. It's bound in a beautiful red Morocco gilt binding by Riviere. This complete copy was bought at the American Art Association through Rosenbach in 1926, liking the title and five other leaves. Wilberforce Eames had photostats made of these pages in the New York Public Library copy. The incomplete copy and the photostats were sent to England. Riviere made excellent facsimile leaves and inserted them in the copy and placed it in its present binding. In 1935, Clarence Brigham 
wrote, of the American Antiquarian Society wrote to Mr. Shiley to say that they had been offered a copy of Eliot's Indian Grammar, which was also incomplete, but uh, it did have the six leaves that were needed in the Shiley copy. So Mr. Shiley bought the antiquarian, the copy, from, I think it came from Goodspeeds, it was offered the Antiquarian Society. It and the Shiley copy were sent back to Riviere. Since the Elliot, or since the Antiquarian Society copy was much smaller, the title page and the necessary five leaves were beautifully extended. You really have to hold them up to the light or use an ultraviolet light to tell just where the extension was. And the fine facsimiles were inserted in the other copy and the American Antiquarian Society got a copy of Elliot's Indian Grammar free, and we now have a tall, complete, fine copy with Samuel Mather's signature on the title page. Therefore, since I think Samuel Mather inherited Cotton and um, increased Mather's books, you might infer, unless you knew all of the correspondence which we have is about an inch thick on this matter, you might think that we had the increased Mather, increased cotton Samuel Mather copy, but we don't. Now this is the kind of sophistication that has really caused a lot of trouble, not only in ownership, but in additions, in issues, and even, and even in the text, because it gets mixed up. For this reason, I do believe that today it is necessary to have some kind of formal training, but I also believe that it is incumbent upon library schools to do what Terry Ballinger is trying to do here, and that is to introduce the best part of what the amateurs did in, in their approach to knowledge, appreciation of, of subject matter, and love of the book into library courses. Thank you. It's uh, Terry's custom that there be no questions and that they be held for wine and something dreadful, usually fig bars, over in room 502. I assume that's going to be what happens this evening. Is anybody here to take care of that? Seems to me that somebody was supposed to. So let's try trotting over to 502 for wine and something dreadful. Thank you very much for a splendid talk.